Friends, colleagues, and p-value skeptics, welcome back to another episode of Brain Buzz. We are your hosts, I'm Kyle. And I'm Drake. And today we are delighted to introduce to you Dr. Wolf Van Pommel. Wolf, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Awesome. Thanks. Wolf, uh, give us a little bit of background. Where are you from? We're lucky to have you in Vancouver for a short period. Uh, give everybody a little spiel. What's your What's your introduction? Who are you? Where are you coming from? What do you do? Yeah, I'm a, I'm a mathematical psychologist um, and actually employed by the University of Leuven in Belgium, uh, in Europe. And I'm here on a sort of sabbatical and I'm visiting uh, Victoria Savalay, who's doing really, really interesting work on the... Uh, uh, measurement error and reliability and structural equation modeling and I thought I would take the opportunity to learn a lot here so actually I'm, I'm, I feel a bit of a student here as well sometimes mm-hmm. uh, which is part of the, the fun of doing a sabbatical is learning new stuff and uh, and, and broadening my uh, horizons and that's exactly what I'm doing here both academically but also I'm here with my family so we explore oh, Vancouver cool. and the country a lot so it's a uh, it's a uh, I'm having a lovely time here yeah awesome well, well, welcome to Canada we're happy to have you it's, yeah. it's perfect time where like we were just saying Vancouver is so nice during this time before the smoke comes in right. <laughs> so Wolf today we're gonna be talking about replicability crisis is that correct yes exactly yeah so your works in, I mean this is a hot topic for a lot of academics and I mean we hear about it uh, since we got into grad school we've heard about it like literally every meeting that we have with Right, it's huge. <laughs> it's always talking about replicability. Um, but let's uh, let's start with just what is replicability crisis? Lots of people have different angles about what it really means, but I think the most intuitive way of understanding it is so if you're if you're into science, you do research and you try to come up with a, or, or come up, find evidence for a hypothesis or, or come up with an interesting effect, and what you really want to know is can we trust this effect? Mm-hmm. Does it does it hold um, if we do it again? If we, in in different cultures maybe. To, to what extent can we trust it? Um, and one of the easy ways to check that, but there are different ways to check that, is just doing an experiment again mm-hmm. on new, uh, new, using new participants, maybe using a slightly different method, and then see if you come up with the same result. Uh, and if you don't come up with the same result, um, or, or if you cannot um, often find the same result if you do the experiment again, you could say there's no reason to trust the original finding. So mm-hmm. it's more than just replicability. Replicability is, uh, or looking at replicability is just one way of knowing or having a, a sense of can we trust this result it's a bit broader it's it's uh, some people also call it the crisis of confidence mm-hmm. uh, it's about being confident in our findings as psychologists or in psychology as a science even more broadly mm-hmm. can we trust can can we trust these findings can we be confident in the findings that psychologists and other scientists have been producing the last uh, couple of years yeah. that's basically the question people are asking in the in the replicability sorry replicability <laughs> crisis yeah. or the crisis of confidence yeah and so how long have they been asking this question like is how how recently has this become like a, a big concern in science right that's, that's, a, that's a very good question and a very interesting one actually it's a, it's a recent issue on a huge scale since 2010 2011 and a couple of things were happening there uh, at that point um, uh, some people started to actually replicate studies so doing some studies again which was for several reasons we could go into later mm-hmm. for several reasons it wasn't typical to do that although it seems like it's an obvious thing to do people didn't do it but then people started to do it and they found out that a lot of um, um, textbook knowledge we had uh, in psychology, um, these findings didn't replicate. So that was one big warning. Another thing that was happening there that, that uh, issued a big warning was a, a very, in hindsight, important study by Daryl Bem. And Daryl Bem was a psychologist or is a psychologist and he's interested in precognition. So meaning he was asking the question, can people look into the future? Mm-hmm. And he did a couple of experiments uh, and he found that um, people can actually do that. He found evidence that people can look into the future. And he didn't really cheat or something to, to find that evidence. He used all the methods that other people are constantly using or have had, had been using. So and then people sorry, uh, started <laughs> to realize, um, um, so but if with these techniques you can come up with such nonsense, 
maybe everything else is nonsense too, or at least there will be some bits that are nonsense too. Yeah. So suddenly a lot of people started to ask the question, isn't what we've, we do and have been doing, isn't it nonsense or at least part of it? Uh, so then a lot of people started to, someone coined the term a crisis of confidence and people started to look in more into methods. But if you look back, actually most of what people have been proposing or advocating uh, since 2010, 2011, it has a long history in, in, in the 30s, from the 30s onwards, um, in, in classic work by, by Fisher, a sort of famous statistician. Uh, a lot of what Fisher has been saying or other statisticians have been saying are exactly these things that we are saying now. So in some sense, there's it's, it's a bit of a cynical opinion, but in some sense, there's nothing new. Mm. What is new is the awareness that people have. And suddenly you could see all these special issues in all kinds of journals and in conference at, these, at, uh, at um, special sessions about methods and, and, and uh, this kind of stuff. So it's, I think it's more the awareness that is new than the methods that are, that are new. Although one thing that also changed uh, um, uh, in comparison to, say, the 30s is that technology, of course, changes. We now have the internet and, and, and one big thing is data sharing. Yeah. Um, people have been talking about data sharing before, but now it's very easy to do so and it becomes... Um, uh, um, and because it's so easy, a lot of people, more people are pushing it, but the idea that we as scientists should share our data, there's nothing new to it, but the awareness and the technology, these are the things that have been changing since 2010, 2011. Right, I imagine I, like it's, it's a good point. I think we talked about this previously, but things change, uh, especially in the last 20 years, right, with with how we store our technology. We were talking with Matt Smith on Matt Smith's yes. episode about this, yeah. uh, how IT has changed over the last few decades, but data sharing as well, I mean, that has a huge implication on share, like sharing your research and the replicability, being able to test other things, because instead of having, you know, a thousand sheets of paper where all your participant information is now you have instead of having to get you know a, a moving van to get all this, right. all of this yeah. data over to somebody else who knows where yeah. uh, now you can just shoot an excel file over yeah. to somebody yeah. across the world right yeah. uh, and so it's i guess it's holding people more uh, accountable for for the work that they're doing uh, and being able to test this is i mean it's just a new thing that we can do now yeah, yeah. yeah exactly there's, there was a famous study about data sharing in i think it's 64 or something and some uh, academic asked a colleague, can I see your data? And he wanted to, I can't remember what the exact goal was. And then in that study, the, 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 the academic writer that his colleague sent the only copy of the data he had across country. Oh so goodness. data sharing 50 years ago was really giving away your data and you didn't have them for yourself anymore um, if you wanted to reanalyze <laughs> it or something. And these things, of course, changed. Uh, now it's, it's, uh, it's, it's much easier. That doesn't mean that there's no reason anymore to share your data, but at least these practical reasons, they have all been, or not all, but for most typical kind of studies, typical mm -hmm. studies, uh, they, have, uh, they have disappeared. So that's a huge change yes, indeed. Certainly. And a lot of journals are now mandating that you provide that data along with your, your actual uh, manuscript when you go to submit so that somebody else can go back and look at it and, and right. you know, potentially try and reproduce your findings. Uh, Wolf, that brings us to a point that I think we should maybe make here, and, and hopefully you can comment on this. When we're talking about the replicability crisis and the crisis of being able to recreate science or findings, that is in itself distinct from suggesting that scientists are doing nefarious things, right? We're not, I think that might be a point worth making here is that when it comes to replicability, we're, we're just simply saying, hey, you found this result. Is this a fluke? Right. By chance, we're finding this. And we're not commenting on the actual researchers' interest in finding that result. We're not suggesting that these people are doing right. things incorrectly or intentionally manipulating the data. Yeah, it's just that changing the numbers, or changing anything. the numbers right. or anything like that. It just so happens, you know, we want to know, hey, this is a really great finding. 
doesn't hold water if we were to do it again. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. I just wanted to make sure that that, that was clear. Yeah. And I think it's yeah. a very important point. And thanks for bringing it up because actually when I was sketching the history a little bit, there was another major event happening around the same, same time. And that was uh, uh, Dirk Stapel, who was a famous psychologist in uh, somewhere in the Netherlands. He was caught of um, just plain fraud. He was making up data. He didn't mm -hmm. cheat a little bit. He was just plainly making up data. He, he told people I go to school and collect data there, but it was just sitting in his room and, and typing up his own data in Excel. But I explicitly didn't mention it because it, it was, of course, yeah. shocking and everything. But right. I think that the, the, the issues we need to focus on is not these kind of fraudsters. It, it's bad by all means, um, but that's not the main issue. There, there must be studies about and about the incident of fraud, and I don't know them, but it's, it's a very low proportion of people who are committing fraud. I'm mostly concerned about people who don't have any intention of doing something wrong, but by just by, by sloppiness or, or, or not having the proper education, do things that can jeopardize the, 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 the trustworthiness of the results. Yeah. Um, and I think that's an important comment to make because a lot of, if, if someone comes up with a new method or a new ID, um, some reaction will always be, okay, but with this with this idea or with this method, you cannot catch fraudsters. And that's true, but that's not the goal of most of these um, uh, uh, new good research practices, uh, as, as these are called. It's not meant for catching fraud. So if you want to commit fraud, there will all be, always be a way um, of mm -hmm. doing so. Even with, with any new policies, there will always be a way of doing so. But that's not my, and I have the impression uh, of other people as well, it's not mine or our main worry. Yeah, sure. No matter what no, no matter what profession, that's always. Yeah, 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 sure, yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And, and I think that it's important to note as well that within the scientific community, we have, you know, generally, there are a lot of checks and balances in place to help mitigate the ability of fraudsters to go out and actually commit those cases of fraud right you know i know that anytime i read something that kind of goes against the main body of literature you know we're naturally skeptic right so we sit there and we say oh, oh, oh hold on a minute let's you know and so you know yeah i think we can set that issue aside but um yeah i just wanted to make sure that we were on the same page on that yeah, so yeah, that's yeah, great point. yeah um i well if I, I think it would be worthwhile to maybe as well mention maybe for people who aren't necessarily as familiar with statistics, when we're talking about replicability or when we're talking about a, a significant finding, what does that mean? Right. Um, there are several ways of, of doing statistics, but the, the, the common way of doing statistics is called frequentist or classical statistics. And what you do there is, is typically ask, you, you, you do an observation, you, you, you observe a number, or you can translate what you observe into a number. And then you ask yourself the question, um, um, what is the probability that I would find this number or a number that, that's, that's larger just based on if I assume nothing is happening? I, I'm interested in an effect, but if I assume there is no effect, there is no effect of A on B, will I observe this number? Um, and how big is the chance that this uh, we would observe if not this number? If the probability is uh, small that you would observe this number if there is no effect, then you kind of take it as evidence that there is an effect. But this, um, uh, there, there's a, there's a, it's not... Um, perfectly logical to do it like that, because actually you're looking at a model that you really don't believe in to make a conclusion about a model or a hypothesis uh, that you do believe in. But that's typically how people um, uh, work. There's a different way of doing statistics that, that solves some of these problems, um, but um, it's that's a bit more technical. And, and uh, up till a couple of years ago, there was no easy software to do that other kind of statistics. So the, the, the major workhorse in psychology was exactly using the reasoning that I that I explained now. And to some extent, it, it, it works. Um, but um, uh, there are also some issues uh, with that kind of reasoning as well. Yeah. So we're using uh, like a p-value. Yes. yes right? exactly, yeah. So yeah. we'll say the number well, you computed is a p-value and it's small enough. You claim to have evidence for your finding. Right, yeah, okay. The odds that it wouldn't be just due to random chance. Or whatever, right. right. Well, if, if we want to know, how is our podcast in relation to other podcasts? 
and we look at our ratings on iTunes versus every other rating on iTunes, and we can say, oh, given given our you know five out of five stellar reviews. <laughs> Hopefully, I don't. I haven't looked actually the in a two, while. The two. Yeah, a couple twos in there. That's fine. Uh, but uh, no ones. Um, but given given you know how far worse, given our number compared to the average of everybody else, what are the odds that our show is actually better than other shows out there? Right. Is that kind of where we're going with the p value? Yeah. Then you would compute a difference between your score and, and say the average score, and the difference is gonna not be exactly zero because yeah. there's always some random variation in the data we cannot uh, we, we cannot control. But then the question you're asking is this number, which is different from zero, but is it really different from zero? Mm-hmm. And then you can compute, assume that there is really no difference between the the, the, the the rating of your show versus other show. What kind of data would I expect? Yeah. And if the number you observed is not very different from the data you would expect if there was no um, uh, uh, difference, then you could conclude or that would be the indicative of there being no real difference. But if it's, if it's a very strange number, according to a very unlikely number, according to the assumption that there is no difference, then you say, okay, we, we, that number really represents what they call significant difference. Yeah. So there is, a significant, there is a real difference between uh, your show and the other show in terms of uh, liking. And it's not bad per se, but I think it's slightly misused in the sense that it, I think it serves a, a great goal as a, as a first sanity check. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But what happens is most people stop there. They found a low p-value and then they say, okay, now I have evidence or even proof um, that there is a difference. And I don't think, I think that's a bit overvaluing what a p-value really can do. Yeah. It's a first check of is there something we could look at, but it shouldn't stop there. And mostly it stops uh, just there, which creates a lot of problems. Yeah, I mean, to add another example to the fire. (laughs) Um, I know a lot of research, I mean, just in general, the way that research has blossomed, uh, gender was always a popular topic to compare genders in whatever you might be looking at, right? So, I mean, if we're looking at differences in, I don't know, say like happiness, we're we're going on happiness right now, right? Uh, And so we compare a a class of 100 students, 50 of them are males, 50 of them are females. Uh, And the males appear to be, you know, one point higher on a 10 point scale right. of happiness on average mm-hmm. is that really meaningful is what we're kind of asking exactly right? yes. and so and well, we're not asking if it's meaningful if it's significant if we're it's statistically if it's significant, significant. Yeah. yeah but the, the the big question i think for a lot of people that aren't you know worried about these p-values is is it really meaningful in the real world right, right? and so does this one point on this 10 point scale really mean you know that males yeah. are happier or, or less happy than females right. and so i think that is always the goal in the research but as you said, there's so many things that you can look at, and the p-value is kind of that first sanity check to say, is this st- is it statistically significant? Right. Is it yeah. different? Would it, not, would it be due to randomness? Right. Or can we proceed now and say, this is how big this effect right. is? Yeah, there's a big difference between statistical significance and practical significance, and you yes. could, in psychology, look a lot at, uh, is this a therapy effective to, say, reduce depression? And even if you can find um, that some therapy reduces uh, your depression score on some scale with half a point or something, yeah. Maybe in practice, I'm not a depression expert, I should no. say that first, um, but maybe in practice it doesn't really mean a thing. People might still be locked in their house or in their bed being being yes. depressed, even if their score increased or decreased with, with half a point. So it, it doesn't really indicate practical significance um, as well, which is obviously what we mostly should care about. Does this really help people? Um, not just by, uh, does, doesn't this just lower their, their uh, score on the scale, but does it improve their life? And, yeah. and these are important questions. Does it actually to translate ask. to anything yeah. substantive outside exactly, of you exactly. know, this study, right? I think that's the, that is really our goal within research is to do those kind of yes, things. Yes. But I think we sometimes get bogged down in the, you know, the statistical significance and, oh, I found something. Something right. has been yeah. found, right? right. Uh, yeah. So this is important now. Yes. <laughs> as, a, as a consumer, um, 
I mean, when you read the findings on, in the news, you see these news articles on these new findings. Um, what do you think as a replicability researcher uh, when you see these things? Are you immediately annoyed? <laughs> or uh, what's the general trend here? Do you think that they're doing a good job of explaining this? Because one finding in the end, I think, is what the main point we're getting at is one finding from one study will not really tell us the whole story. So, so what do you think about the way that it's portrayed in news? Do you think they're, we're doing a better job now? Or do you think that the way people are consuming research, um, do you think it's good? <laughs> It depends. First annoyance I often have when, when I read about uh, research being reported in the news that I, I immediately want to find the, the link to the paper yes. or the preprint and it's it's often very hard to find. Mm. Uh, sometimes there isn't even a preprint and then the news item is just based on a, on a press release or something. Um, what I tend to see, and it's from a bit personal experience, that I often find cases where the reporting in the in the, um, the, the, the body of the, the news item is, is quite okay, but then the titles are always overdoing it. And, and of course, I know they, they want clicks and everything, but mm. um, I often get annoyed by reading the title. And then when I read the full, the full uh, report, I say, okay, this is, this, this could be, this could be bad. okay. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. That, that clickbait, the clickbait titles are so problematic. It is, but actually scientists are also doing it just yeah. in their own papers. They, they oversell, especially in the titles and in, in the abstract. Yeah. Um, but I think that that's, that's another problem we should try to address that, that um, uh, how journalists should consume uh, research. And, and I think it's not only, I'm not going to say that it's all their fault and the journalist's fault. It's also the way that uh, scientists themselves or the, or the press officers press officers write uh, press releases. And, and of course, you want to make um, make it sound that it's very uh, um, it's very far-fetching uh, um, um, consequences and everything. But mm -hmm. science is a, is a very subtle business and, and journalism often isn't. And, and there's this big discrepancy. Um, even if I, as a scientist, uh, when I think and talk about my own research, I, I, I can think about it in a, in a subtle way, I think. But whenever I, I think about other people's research, all the subtleties suddenly disappear. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Basically, the job of doing science is finding something or, or, or finding evidence for something and then also immediately indicating the limitations of either your method or, the, or, or your findings or how general these things are. Mm -hmm. And these things often get lost when, as soon as you uh, leave the, the, the small confines or your very small audience, even among scientists. So it's, it's very hard to report exactly on those subtleties, even within a scientific paper, let alone in a, in a, in a newspaper article. I, I, well, we get, we get degrees for understanding the subtleties within our area. Right, exactly. Right? And so, you know, Drake will get his PhD, God willing. <laughs> still pray. <laughs> Every night. <laughs> but but part, of the, part of the point of that is being able to understand the subtlety within that very small area. And so what I think you said hits the nail on the head. When I look at his work, I, I don't see those subtleties. Exactly. Because I'm not trained to see it. And so I, I start, you know, I, if I'm trying to talk about his work to somebody else, I will start overclaiming the significance of it, not because I, not because I don't think it's important or anything like that. It's just that I simply don't have that knowledge base. And so when you're asking, when you're asking a journalist, or literally, we don't even need to talk necessarily about journalists, but anybody else, about, yeah. exactly, anybody else trying to trying to digest and understand that information, we need to understand that they don't necessarily have the expertise to be able to express that subtlety in a way that can be translated to others. Yes, I fully agree with that. Yeah, yeah, and I, and I think that's a hugely problematic thing, as, as we've kind of alluded to this to this point. Yeah, and so a quick question, I guess, in this sense is like, 
one study doesn't really tell us the whole story. So how do we address this? I mean, how should we address, go, address this going forward? Do we just need, does every researcher have to follow up with another study in a different population? And when we say this, like replicating a study, there's a, multiple ways to replicate studies, right? You can replicate with the same sample that you use. So say you use students for your sample, uh, you could ask, does the same thing stand up? You know, does, do students, when they pet dogs, do they beget, become happier? Okay, yes, we found that in one study. Great, <laughs> awesome, they're way happier. Uh, what about people outside of that like, sample, right? And right. so that could also, that generalizability is also something right. that we strive and Different for. kind of dogs. Yeah, different kinds of dogs. Right Does a chihuahua make someone exactly. happy versus, you know, a labradoodle? Right. Like petting in the evening versus petting in the morning. And <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly, petting in the water versus <laughs> petting not in the water. Like, there's a lot of variables here. And so, I mean, replicating that exact study is something that is a big part of what we're talking about today is that, you know, we're petting a, a labradoodle in the sun at right. 5 p.m. every night. And With for my five, right yeah, hand. Yeah. <laughs> With your right hand, left tied behind the back. Yeah. There's a lot of variables being controlled here, right? right. Uh, no one's around you. You're not surrounded by other people. Like, these are all things that are accounted for, and that, that is specific. And so, so you could do the exact same study in a different school with the same kind of population, but say, yes, I found that as well, or I did not find that. Right. And then you can have, you know, your your variations of your, you know, your Great yeah. Danes mm -hmm. or whatever yeah. it is in right. water or wherever on a boat, whatever you want to do. Um, and that all plays a part in this replicability crisis. Is that is that appropriate to say that? Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. totally appropriate. Uh, there, there's a lot of context sensitivity to everything we do in psychology and, and probably more broadly, and, and it's. It's very hard to to uh, to take that into account. Um, in principle, it's not you just you can test any any combination you want, but it's also it, 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 there's a lot of resources going to that, man hours and money, and you have to pay the participants. So you could ask the question: Is it is it right. worth to do all this? Yeah. But I think it also touches to a deeper issue that, that the way you describe it now, and it's a bit jokingly, of course, but that's basically the way it happens. Um, it also touches upon a, a deeper issue that most of the way we we do science is just collecting findings and, and and some people have described it somewhere in a, in a very nice article in the 60s as as uh, collecting bricks but we don't need just these bricks we need bricks to build a house um and it's we don't have enough of that um uh, of that house building in psychology i think and what do i mean by that we just don't need these findings on themselves they need to be part of a theory and if we have a theory of what happiness is and or the influence of, of physical contact or physical contact with, with animate objects or whatever is on happiness, then it doesn't really matter to do all these kind of sub-experiments and small... Yes, exactly, but we don't have these kind of theories, or at least if we have those theories, they're not strong enough to, to make um, uh, very well-founded claims. Uh, and that forces us to do these all kind of small, minor experiments. And it doesn't really bring us that far because it's endless to, uh, to start with. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But also just a finding. Well, findings should be, ideally, I think, um, be costs or either either raise or, or, or generate uh, interesting ideas for a theory or be used as, as evidence in support or uh, uh, against the theory. And we're, we're missing kind of that, not because people are not aware of it, everybody's talking about the importance of theories, um, but it's, it's just really hard to build good theories about human beings because human beings are so complex and there's so much context uh, going on and people have a history and there's so much in individual differences. So making these theories makes it very hard and kind of forces us to do this to 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 work in a way that we are just collecting findings and hopefully somebody once will take all these findings if we can trust these findings and, and build a beautiful theory out of it but yeah. that's kind of where we are at now yeah it's a great point I mean, yeah theory driven research versus you know explorative exploratory research is like I, that's a great way of putting it yeah and there's i think there's great reason to do both but only when they're informing each other exactly yes. and 
so when you were kind of talking about the bricks, I was thinking like, you know, if you've got a clearing in the forest, you're the little piggy and you've got, you know, the big bad wolf is coming. If you have a hundred bricks and you just go into the clearing in the forest and just start throwing them out randomly, that doesn't do you any good. Right. But, or you're putting a bunch of bricks in one pallet and then you move over a hundred meters and put another bricks, yeah, it doesn't, bricks in another pallet. Yeah, away. if they're all, if they're, you know, somewhat unconnected or, or not in some way intertwined with one another, right. yeah. they don't they're, do us much they're good. They're useful now. Yeah. Right? yeah. They, they, they could provide in the future a stepping stone, but at the, at the moment that you need them, they're not there to be used. Yes, uh, yeah. exactly. Absolutely. That's great. I mean, it's it's a really good point. And I think that's something that I didn't even think about when we were talking about replicability crisis theories driving these these studies. And, and coming back to the idea of that uh, we are, you know, we are using tax money, ta the taxpayers' money to do this research. And we want it to benefit the taxpayers and everybody else around us, right? We don't want to just create a study just because we think that chihuahuas are shitty dogs uh, versus Labradoodles, Labradoodles, right. right? Like we think, I keep going back to Labradoodles, Labradors. Chihuahuas are. Labradoodles chihuahuas, are Chihuahuas, I mean, but to each their own, some people, some viewers might have chihuahuas, so I apologize for those viewers. But I mean, That's okay. these are two-star ratings here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we're going to have a ton of yeah. two-star ratings flooding in after yeah. this episode. Should have chosen a different dog. They can dog. come at me. It's uh, <laughs> at Kyle Gooder on Twitter. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, that's, I mean, yes, I think that's exactly it, right? It's a theory. It's this, maybe the theory is, say, for this, this really crude example is that this connection between a dog and a, and a man and, and a person, uh, and maybe it's hormones or some sort of like pheromones or something like that. Whatever the theory might be, it's a weak theory, I agree. Uh, <laughs> but uh, as long as you have that theory, you can test that theory. And then these studies have more weight behind them whenever you do find them, like the, the significant results. Um, so... Now that we've kind of explored this replicability crisis and what's going on and how, you know, what what's what it is, what the heck do we do, Wolf? <laughs> what, yeah. what are we supposed where, to do? Where do we go this? now, Wolf? <laughs> yeah. what's, some, what's the what's the million dollar answer? Right, 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 yeah, right. Give me some good news here. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah I've been uh, I was thinking before I came here, what will these people ask me? And, and that was the first question I came up with. They're gonna ask me, what should we do? And I've been thinking about it yeah. harder than I normally think about it. <laughs> and I have the answer. Oh, okay. well, oh perfect. No, 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 I, I, I don't have a... <laughs> you wouldn't be here talking about <laughs> yeah, yeah. the answer. If I'm collecting his Nobel Prize, yeah. that would be the case. Yeah. Yeah. No, Fair. Absolutely. So what, is, I mean, what are the stepping stones, I guess? Yeah. You know? Right, I, I think the, it's, it's a very vague answer I, I, I can come up with. And I think, the uh, actually, there are two broad ways we could go about it. Either we could say, okay, let's let's call it a day and, and stop for a while <laughs> and just sort out exactly how we should do research and and, 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 and uh, decide about the basic principle, principles. And only if we decided that as a field, we'll start again, we'll start over and start doing research. Um, because it's actually, it's 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 very um, um, weird to see that we're not fighting, our methodolo methodologists are not fighting about the, the small details, they're fighting about bigger principles. Like, should we do testing or should we do estimation or, or what, what should we do when? And these kind of really basic issues or what is our significance level? It's, it's a technical concept, but like, it's a very basic thing. People are still discussing about it. What should we do? How should we treat it? Which is weird, I think, given that we have been doing already for more than 100 years research. Mm -hmm. um, but good. Um, so we could say, OK, let's, let's stop it for a while and first decide on all these things and then only, only then start doing research. But one, it's impractical. Two, it will take very long. And three, it's, it's probably not even uh, possible in principle to find the only correct way that will generate fruitful findings all the time. It probably doesn't even exist. Yeah, like a universal um, law. Right, right. <laughs> exactly. It, it's, it's futile to wait for that or, or, or work on that. Mm -hmm. So given that we're we, we're working with these fallible methods, I think we should just 
continue doing research as we do, um, but trying to incorporate as many good practices as we can. And also, and, and that's related to it, but it's an, it's an important point, be very aware of the limitations that you have in your own study. And it comes back a bit to, this, to the subtlety um, that we discussed earlier. People try to um, uh, sweep the, the, the limitations under the rock, and I'm, I'm also guilty of that. It's a very human thing to do. Um, it is just um, uh, you don't probably sometimes you don't see it or you don't want to admit it. Sometimes you think if I if I um, 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 tell my audience about its limitations, they won't it won't be published or they won't believe you. Um, and 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 and, if, and you you have to publish or you want publications, and it's good for your ego and for your career and, and all these kind of things. Um, but it's something we should do more, I think, being open about limitations and also not doing it ourselves, but also be forgiven to others for these limitations. It's, it's, a, it's a bit of a side story, but I recently uh, submitted a paper and I did exactly what I said. I, I, I listed all the limitations of my study and I got a review back and the reviewer complained and he complained about exactly those limitations that I, uh, that I addressed. So in hindsight, I said, oh, why did I do this? Probably if I didn't um, uh, write about his limitations, he wouldn't have noticed. Mm. So I kind of, um, uh, I, uh, later I was doubting, should I have done that? But I think it's, it's good that, I, uh, that yeah. I have done that. But we should be open to limitations and always treat a study um, um, uh, or inter interpret the result of a study in the context of these, of these limitations. And um, that, I think, is the only way forward and then if you later combine all studies in, in a meta-analysis which which basically takes all the evidence that there is for for or against a, a certain finding combines it again you can weigh it according to these limitations and maybe what is a limitation what we see as a limitation will change in in, in 50 years so um the transparency is also a word that uh, has been used quite a lot is a really big issue just be as do what you think is best but then be transparent as transparent as possible even if it doesn't make you look good mm -hmm. um that's, I think, the best we can do for now and also continue to work on, on coming up with new methods, uh, better methods, better implementations of old methods, uh, mm -hmm. and so on. I think yeah. separating the ego is a great way to put it because really, in the end, we're not worried about the name on the paper. We're worried about the findings in the paper. Uh, or 100 years from now, that's what we're worried right, about. Right, we're right. not worried about, yeah. you know, <laughs> Drake Levere wrote this. It's it's what was the finding and then how transparent were you uh, is really going to have a longer effect than, you know, your career uh, and, and bigger impact on everybody else. Right. Yeah. yeah. Wolf, we've kind of gotten to this point where, you know, we've we've talked a lot about obviously where we're going and where we need to be and everything like that. In some ways, we've been a little bit pessimistic about it. Are we really as a field, are we lost? Are we are we somewhere out in the woods or is there a way out? Uh, good question. Uh, I do think we're lost, but at least we realize we are lost. Well, maybe 10 years ago, we were also lost, but we were thinking we were going on a, on a very nice route that would bring us to an amazing view. Sure. And now at least we know we're kind of lost and, and there is this general awareness that we should and, and could do better. Um, so that's that's an optimistic uh, view, I think, that we, we know something should be changed and people are debating about what should be changed and, and the conditions, it should it be mandatory or should people just be encouraged and those kind of discussions are, mm -hmm. uh, are going on. Um, but the fact that we realize there are some problems and things need to change and you see especially young people uh, picking up all these new ideas, um, makes me actually optimistic uh, more than pessimistic especially I, I also teach about these kind of things and uh, basically often when i when i've uh, thought about for example that you should and, and how you should uh, ideally share your data 
the, the students look at me like, what do you say? Of course, it, they, they don't know anything yeah, about how right. uh, how the, the academic world really really works, and they have this naive view, and they always uh, they think that we do this all the time because it's obvious that you should do it. Mm-hmm. Or when I talk about pre-registration, which is the idea that before you do a study, you exactly describe what you will do, how you will collect your data, how you will analyze your data, this kind of stuff. Everybody thinks, or most students think, okay, this is how science works. This is how it's done. And when I when I explain them, now we should really start doing this. They look at me like, come on, yeah. I thought you were doing this already. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So with young people, it's it's um, they're they're easy to convince, or they're all already convinced um, about uh, the the value of most of these good research practices. So that makes me. Bit of an optimistic person, although what will happen, of course, when they enter the academic world and, and publication pressure kicks in, and and, and suddenly the, the the whole incentive system changes or, or suddenly is, is imposed onto them. So I don't know how how they will uh, withstand all these pressures, but um, I, I would consider myself slightly optimistic. Actually, yeah. some of that idealism that they have now will get worn away in right. the <laughs> academic process, and that's you know academia is notoriously antiquated and archaic in many ways it moves slowly um you know we we have a way of doing things that have been around for hundreds you know at least 100 years and we despite massive advances that we already talked about in this episode despite all those massive advances we haven't necessarily kept up with the times as a field as a as a scientific community and i don't think that's necessarily exclusive to psychology either definitely yes yeah uh and to to kind of hop on that optimistic train as well just to kind of push us over the edge for optimism today um i think i mean this may just be you know this may be anecdotal but i think as cult as a culture i think we are becoming more critical about the stuff we're consuming or at least we're being told to be more critical now about what we're consuming and i mean this can be seen in like the idea that when the TV, came, the television came out for the first time, uh, a lot of people started to look to the news for their their, their sources of, of information and, and took that as kind of gospel, right? And and now what academia has kind of been kind of translated into was that kind of new gospel where we can trust the science, right? Uh, and even uh, up until, you know, 10 years ago, we, we did trust it as, you know, we believe these scientists, so we believe these findings, and this is what's going on. Uh, and now we're starting to be more critical about it. And... This is the natural progression of being critical. Uh, now we don't trust what the person on MTV is saying about <laughs> the next trends or what you should be wearing and things like that. Or, you know, like whatever. Uh, Dr. Oz lost a little cred- cred- credibility, you know. Uh, we don't go to Dr. Oz for our health concerns anymore. Uh, we start to think critically about when we're reading a journal, or a peer-reviewed journal article, what are we missing from this? What is What are the limitations and what are these issues right. with it, right? I think that's great. I mean, it's good that we are going that way because uh, if we were to not be in this situation, we would still be thinking that everything that uh, every scientist has ever written uh, is correct. Right. Uh, and then how do you have combative, uh, you know, uh, com- not combative. Comparative. Com- uh, uh, no, it's uh, just like a competing, uh, competing theories, right? Like the whole point of having competing theories in, in research is to say, I think my theory is right. I think yours is right. Wrong. They both can't be right. Maybe they can. <laughs> Who knows? Let's figure it out and let's keep running studies to test this. Right. Uh, and I think that for me is an optimistic look for this replicability crisis is that right. we are concerned about it. Yes, exactly. We're yeah. calling it a crisis for a reason right. because we want it to be better. Yes, exactly. I, I think something that people either forget or, or didn't really realize is that science is hard. Yeah. It, it seems like if you learn about science in, in, in high school, it might not be your, your favorite subject, but there's like this this um, this number of steps you have to follow. First, you have your hypothesis and you collect data and it seems like, okay, I can do this, this is neat. Um, but in reality, it's hard. Collecting data is hard. Reducing measurement error is hard. Analyzing your data is hard. There are tons of options you could choose. and, and and um, 
maybe it, it all always seemed too easy in, uh, when, when especially when science was reported in the media there was this one study and it gave a definite answer to some question about nutrition or whatever mm-hmm. and it's not um, as we talked about before there's never one study is never the definite answer to something and yeah. The keto diet is the way to lose 50 pounds. Right, right. Like, <laughs> that was kind of headlines. Exactly, and yeah. I think now the general public is also aware that science is hard and scientists are human beings who try to do hard stuff and can be wrong and will be wrong sometimes. And We're fallible. Uh, yeah. this, that's the nature of everything, right? right? You're not yeah. always going to be right 100% of the time, but we're trying to you know, learn more about humans and, and the world around us. Right. It, that actually brings up a really good point. Um, I, I do a lot of work with, uh, in a course... Uh, for undergraduates here at UBC where they it's research methods so they go and they actually produce a study of their own and I you know almost every single group every single person in the class will come to me at some point and say oh like what about this like it's you know it's not it's wrong or we have this limitation I don't know what to do and I think it's important to say there is no perfect study right like every study is inherently flawed in some way and that's just the nature of science. And we, we can do more of these studies so that we can mitigate right. those flaws or minimize them at least. But, you know, just as we're fallible, so is the science. And we right. need, as long as we acknowledge that and say we need to simply think about the, the weight of evidence, the quantity and the value of that evidence, quantity and quality of that evidence mm-hmm. in support of whatever theory we want to take forward. So, right. Yeah. yeah. A lot of people thing that science is in the business of proving things and that comes back to your point and, and of course you can never prove things except in, in mathematics um, even if you do hundreds of studies and the evidence is large and still we have supported some theory or some some uh, some idea but there's no proof going on and a lot of people think that science is in the business of proving that this is correct or this is wrong and that's not we're just weighing evidence and mm-hmm. hopefully at some point we have enough evidence to be confident in a finding or in a theory mm-hmm. but it's never going to be a proof of anything yeah, yeah, absolutely. yeah absolutely i have one question before we go into the break um, and this might be a tough one to answer. Um, <laughs> so I apologize in advance. Um, I was going to ask you what makes a good study. I'd rather you answer what makes a bad study. I think one of the issues that makes science hard is that it's done by humans and humans have biases and, and we have egos. And, and um, so that's one point I want to make. And then I want to mm-hmm. say something else and then I'm going to combine them. In a lot of studies, and I, I briefly touched upon it, there's 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 never just one way of doing something. So uh, if you collect data um, from uh, human participants and you ask them to do a task, some people will just they, they be distracted or they, they, they won't be able, they're not motivated and don't, they don't do the task. So it might be good to remove those people who are not paying any attention and just clicking buttons because they, they get credit or money for it to remove those from your data set. But how do you identify those people so maybe you've seen it that people are were almost sleeping while they were doing the task and you can uh, you can remove those but for other for others it will be um, uh, more difficult to decide is this a good data point or a bad data point did they pay attention were they motivated uh, weren't they um, uh, paying attention or weren't they motivated so that's a decision you have to make what do i do with these data and it, it doesn't doesn't have anything to do with cheating or fraud it's just a, a typical decision you have to make when you do your data analysis and this is just one example of Tons of decisions you have to make, and there's no way uh, from escaping making important decisions in your data analysis, and they can have a they can have a big impact on your on your result. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something they, they they call researcher degrees of freedom. So there are a lot of there's a lot of freedom in analyzing your data without being a bad scientist, without being a, a fraudster. Um, and but that freedom can also 
either be exploited or, or used to confirm your own biases. You want to find something or you believe in something uh, or you want to get published. Um, uh, and that can, uh, without really knowing that can influence you as a researcher to do some kind of things um, uh, to, to, uh, uh, to, to nudge your result in some direction. Um, so what I always looking at when I read a study is trying to think what are these researchers degrees of freedom, where, where exactly was the flexibility and how do I think that the authors try to constrain these flex this flexibility or these research degrees of freedom? It's very hard to do so, um, uh, to, to convince readers that you didn't exploit these research degrees of freedom. Um, um, but sometimes it's, it's just enough people don't do it. But actually, if, if you write in your paper, if you're an author of a paper, you're a scientist and you're reporting your research and you just say, OK, I, I only analyzed this data one time. I didn't try out different uh, stuff. I didn't uh, do the analysis with for, without excluding those people and then with excluding these people. Yeah. And I just report the one that, that I think is most, in, most interesting for some reason. Yeah. It's, it's not proof or anything. They don't prove it. They didn't do it. But that increases my trust in uh, uh, the fact that they didn't do it uh, or it increases my confidence. So I look for these kind of uh, flags. How can I know that the flexibility, which is totally unavoidable, hasn't been exploited. Mm -hmm. These one sentences can help. You can also do things like uh, I mentioned it before, pre-registration, which means that before you do the study, you write down all the decisions you will make later without seeing the data. Yeah. And so that's a very extreme way of uh, freezing those research degrees of freedom. It's like a contract um, before you get into doing it, right? It's like, so it's I, a contract you can... Yeah, you can kind uh, of get out of if, but, but right. if you're like pre-registering, you're kind of saying, I'm saying I'm going to do this. Just so right, <laughs> right. And then if you don't do it, then you're kind of going away from that pre-registration right. ability, right? Right, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So that's what some, that's something to look at. It's 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 hard because to to answer the first question, what is the flexibility involved? You need to know a bit about research design, but I think that's a main issue that has been people knew about it, but maybe they weren't um, uh, that convinced about the impact that flexibility has. Mm -hmm. But now everybody really knows that uh, exploiting the flexibility can dramatically change your uh, results. Yeah. So that would be something to have an eye for. That's great. I mean, that was a really in-depth answer. I mean, I'm really like, that's for very like high end looking into these journals. Like that's something that I haven't even really been looking for. And I, I appreciate that advice mm -hmm. um, for me. It was an early academic. That's, uh, that's very, academic very useful advice. Yeah, I mean, and, and just as like a, broad strokes uh, when you're looking at research try and think about who the population is that they're looking at too I mean I, I've been doing a lot of a lot of teaching when it comes to like what being critical about the work that uh, that you're consuming but you know who are they who are they measuring who are they saying that these findings extend to right. is really important you know if they had a, a group of 200 students and they're saying this is going to happen for everybody right. you know do you trust that should you trust that um, how many did they, you know, did they look at five people or did they look at 500,000 people, right? Yeah. Uh, and, and then also bringing back what we talked about earlier in the episode is this, what is the difference? What is the actual effect here? Right. Right? You know, uh, did we see a difference of 0.1 on a, you know, the 100 point scale, 100 point <laughs> scale you know, men are, you know, 54.5 and women are 54.6 and that's a significant difference? Right. Wow, yeah. <laughs> you know, is that actually going to have an impact in everyday life? Is there actual, you know, uh, real significance there? Yeah. Right. So those are right. things. I mean, uh, and on top of your amazing answer, I mean, lots of things to look for when you're consuming literature and, and thinking critically about this stuff. So, uh, great. All right. With that, we'll wrap up this conversation. We'll take a little break, and uh, when we come back, we'll dive into some mis misconceptions and a couple cool facts with Wolf. Cheers.
Welcome back to my episode. I'm Wolf, and today we talk about replicability in psychological science. Awesome. Perfect. Thanks, Thanks Wolf. Great. All right, Drake. Awesome. Right. Misconceptions. So I got I got a little bit of a silly question for you. Uh, we've been talking a lot about replication and you know uh, doing things again, like running studies over again. Um, Disney's been going pretty hard <laughs> recently on remakes for movies. Right. What is your take on replicating classic movies? Oh, that's a great question. <laughs> Have you watched the recent Jungle Book? Are you going to watch The Lion King with your, your children soon? Uh, good question. It, uh, actually, it, it's not such a silly question because it relates to the, the, the biases I was talking about. I don't think I want to watch the new Lion King because I, I saw The Lion King when I was a kid yeah. and I loved it. And it's never going to be as mm -hmm. good as maybe for my kids, but I'm thinking about myself. Yeah. For me, it's never going to be as good as the, the, the Lion King I saw earlier when I was a kid. And a bit of a similar um, feeling or emotional attachment is, I think, happening with, with, when you do science and when you when you do a replication. If you do a, a study and you have some finding, you come emotionally you become emotionally attached to it. Although in principle you shouldn't, of course, it's just yeah. an observation of the world and it's supposed to be objective and everything. But it's it's your finding and your name is on it. Yeah. Um, so that attachment also makes this debate about replicability, replicability makes it hard because people who did the first study probably became attached to their study and, and yeah. don't like the people criticize it or, 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 or have some question about it. So it's not such a silly question if you, mm -hmm. if you, uh, if you look at it from that perspective. I, because the same reason I don't want to go see The Lion King <laughs> is the reason people get offended when they're... Uh, when they're, when they're, they're yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Ah, it's interesting. Yeah, cool. Yeah, so no Lion King for Wolf. <laughs> maybe the kids. Maybe the yeah, kids. Yeah, <laughs> maybe. I do got to see watch Toy Story 4 with them. Oh, okay. yeah. Yeah. Oh, I'm, I'm looking forward to that very one. Different, very different story <laughs> there. We're right. talking about Toy Story movies. They're unbelievable. Yeah. I, as soon as I saw Toy Story 4, I knew exactly what was happening in the, uh, the trailer. I got upset because I'm like, they can't be doing another one. And then I, as soon as it was done, I'm like, it's going to be a great movie. Right. They're just right. doing such a phenomenal job. And so, Have you seen it? I haven't seen oh, okay, it yet. Right, right. No. Have you? No, no, not oh, yet. Oh, my goodness. No. Okay, so I'm super excited. It's going to be great. Is there any myths or cool facts you can think of that we could talk about? Even just like a random fact that you like to bring up every once in a while. Some people have the most random facts, like just ready to tell. <laughs> yeah. Like, that was a really weird fact. Why did you have that fact? On yeah. Why did, why did that come up? How did you come up with that? <laughs> yeah. It could be anything. I mean, it's okay if not as well. I know we're putting it on the spot. Uh, I, actually, I, I happen to know quite a bit of a random facts about bald eagles because my son okay. did a project on it. But maybe okay. as a Canadian, you all know these kind of things. But I learned that's an American thing. They're all bald eagles. There are lots of bald eagles in Canada. I know this. There are yeah. lots of bald eagles in, in Canada. <laughs> yeah, let's hear, let's hear Wolf. What, yeah. Wolf talking about bald eagles <laughs> is, is what yeah. pretty much is. All right, what what are your hot facts? His son's obviously the leader on this yeah. sprite. Yeah. But what, what do you have on bald eagles? Expert. Yeah, actually, when I walk my kids to school then, then we always pass a big tree where there's a bald eagle's nest and that's why my son became intrigued by bald eagles so we're doing a lot of uh, fact checking about bald eagles and one of the things I, I like is for example they have a they have a transparent eyelid so if they blink they can still see which i think is amazing oh my god what <laughs> that's really cool well, that's actually insane <laughs> And they can uh, they can watch um, in front of them and at the side and, and, and watch uh, to the side at the same time which i think is also really cool wow and uh, what else did I learn? They can swim, basically, uh, apparently. So if they dive into the water and their, their feathers become too wet to still fly, they swim and just paddle with their wings 
to the shore and then they, really? they, they dry up. Wow. So here's a bald eagle fact. Oh, wow, that's <laughs> cool. You? I was expecting one bald eagle fact. I got about four. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's sweet. I can do a full hour on bald eagle if you want. <laughs> We're going to have to have you back. <laughs> <summer. Yeah. laughs> Maybe we'll talk yeah. about his bald eagles. We'll have your son on. You can do a whole round. Yeah, we'll do a whole well, round. Do you know why a bald eagle is called bald? Because it's not bald at all. No, why? Just the white head, right? No, no, no. Oh, <laughs> not at all. They used to be called piebald. I don't know if it's still a word in English, but at least it used to be an existing word in English, piebald, and it means of different colors. And a, and a bald eagle uh -huh. has different colors, like a white hat and brown feathers oh, and a yellow yeah. beak. Yeah. Um, but then for some reason, the pie just got dropped, just dropped and off. now it's just bald eagle. Interesting. Oh, cool. So it's the differences in the colors. Cool. That's I didn't know that. One, I, I do have one bald eagle fact. I don't know <laughs> if it's still true or not, but apparently there are more bald eagles in British Columbia, the province of British Columbia, as there are in the entire U.S. of A. Oh, really? Allegedly. In, in, including Canada? Uh, including Alaska? Uh, allegedly. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Although, you, which seems odd because you think Alaska's got a lot of bald right. eagles, right? But anyways, well, yeah. fact, someone have to fact, fact check Kyle now. Yeah. Don't, you don't have to fact check. <laughs> yeah, those are, those are true facts. <laughs> yeah. Mine's skeptic. Right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Good to be skeptical. Yeah. Like he said today. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I don't have the. Uh, I don't have the subtlety and knowledge there. I'm yeah, just exactly. Yeah. On this. Yeah, yeah. When I was reading about this with my son in, in, in books and online, I always had to uh, restrain myself from saying, "Is this really true? Shouldn't we check this?" Uh, <laughs> yeah. But I, yeah. I didn't do it. That's, yeah. that's for later. <laughs> yeah, I love it. Yeah, you didn't. Uh, you know, didn't fact check the hungry caterpillar as they're reading it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, did he really eat that much? Yeah. Could they eat that much? <laughs> Could they eat that much? I'm skeptical. Yeah. Beautiful. I mean, that's awesome. Well, thank yeah. you so much for coming on. Yeah, thank you for joining us. Yeah. Um, very we've, welcome. We've had an absolute blast. It's been a pleasure. We've learned a lot. And I, I must say, anybody who's going to be listening along must have learned something too because... Yeah. If nothing else, I've learned something about bald eagles. That I've before. <laughs> so yeah, it's, it's been great. Um, anyways, uh, thank you all for joining us and listening in. We've had a wonderful time uh, chatting with Wolf, and hopefully you've enjoyed listening along too. Uh, if you've enjoyed the episode, leave behind a review or two wherever you found it. Uh, let us know. Leave us a comment. Uh, tell us what you liked, maybe what you disliked, what you might want to hear differently or added to the show. Uh, if you have some idea for what you want to see during a brain break, you can let us know. Um, and be sure to check us out. We're on uh, uh, on our website, obviously, brainbuzzpodcast.com, where you can find this episode along with links. We're going to have a few links to uh, some of Wolf's papers on replication, so make sure you check those out. Uh, definitely will be an informative read, uh, as well as links and content from previous episodes uh, and a way to get in touch with Wolf. So uh, make sure you do that there. Uh, you can find us on BrainBuzz uh, at Brain Buzz Podcast on Twitter and on Facebook. So find us on our social media. We'll be there. We'll be around. Uh, drop us a line. Uh, wish us a good summer, and we'll wish you one back. Mm -hmm. uh, Wolf, how can our guests and friends, or how can our, well, guests, guests too, how can our friends get in touch with you if they want to find out a little bit more, pick your brain about something, about a bald eagle, perhaps? <laughs> <laughs> They're free to email me. Um, Fantastic. You can, you can put my email address on the, on the website. Yeah, we'll have that there under the uh, the guest tab as we do for all of our guests. So that's great. Yeah. Any, uh, any shout outs or anything you want to mention while you have this floor? It's all yours. If there's anything coming up or any anybody you want to shout out, feel free. I'm, uh, I'm very grateful to uh, for Victoria for hosting me here in UBC. We're, as I said, we're having a wonderful time. Um, I'm, I'm feeling sad that we're almost uh, leaving already, but mm. I'm really happy. We, uh, it was a lot of work to come here and admin stuff and everything, but I'm, I'm so happy we, uh, we did this. Everybody is having a great time, my family included. So. Yeah, wonderful. Yeah, thanks, thanks to Dr. Satellite. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Uh, well, until next time, cheers. Cheers. Cheers.